Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Welcome back. This is the Go-To-Market Heroes podcast by Notion Capital. I'm Paul Papadimitri, your show host at large, now vaccinated, but thankfully with lots of energy today. It was yesterday. <laughs> and I am with Andy, as always. We've not only become used to do this podcast together, but we are having an absolute grand time, actually. And as you know, I always start by asking Andy a question. I said, I think, twice already that you're the king of 80s pop music quizzes, a true encyclopedia. So why 80s pop music? And precisely, I think it's music from 1975, that's my date of birth, to 1985. Is there anything that defines this era for you? And, and maybe do you have any favorite bands or multiple or one, actually? Oh, hey, it's good to see that you're vaccinated, by the way. That's good. Thank you. feeling okay? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, all my friends were telling me, you're going to have an horrible night and nothing happened. So maybe tonight, I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, read your question. This goes back a little bit to when we we're talking about home computing. So I just love periods in history where it goes from, from kind of hobbyists and amateurs to kind of a professional thing. And music, 75 to 85, there were two big things that happened. One was, in the late 70s, everyone discovered anyone could pick up a guitar and be famous and write a song. Yeah. And to me, when I was growing up, I had older cousins who were punks. Yeah. And they were going through that phase. And I just <laughs> listened to that music. I'm like, who are these people? And I realized that they weren't professional musicians. They were just people who loved to do what they were doing. And there was a lot of social change going on at that time in the late 70s. And then pretty much at the turn of that decade into the 80s, it was the same thing. My father brought home a record which kind of changed things for me by a band called Kraftwerk. I'm sure many people have heard of Kraftwerk. I was like, what is this? And he's like, there's no typical instruments on this. It's all synthesized. And they've made their own equipment. You know, they were hobbyists. So again, yeah. just built it. And my father was a radio amateur. And not only did he build and kind of be part of that early home computing revolution, but also he built some keyboards, of which I've still got, and synthesizers. And I remember the first time that I really kind of looked at this, there was a band called OND, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, and it was one of the oh, first yeah. bands I ever saw live. And they named a song after one of the valves that they'd spotted on the back of a Kraftwerk album called Radioactivity. And I was like, how cool is that? That all of a sudden, it was off. You know, there was like a whole scene that grew from just this. You know, it's just incredible. And it was hobbyists. People who built their own equipment, built their own stuff, wrote their own songs. They're not professional musicians. And now look at the, the whole industry we've created. I think those are turning points, you know, and they reflect a lot of what's going on in society and changes that are happening in terms of attitudes as well. So, so punk... New wave, I think it was just an exciting time. When you say new wave, of course, I'm younger than you, but when you say new wave, I think of new wave of British heavy metal because one of my favorite bands is Iron Maiden. So are we in the new wave of B2B startups in Europe? That's a good question. Good question. <laughs> so maybe maybe to answer that question, actually, maybe was he in a band? I don't know. Who is our hero of the day, Andy? Well, I'm super pleased to welcome Dan Hyde to the podcast. I've known Dan for quite a few years. I'm not going to date myself and say how long, but we've known each other a while. We've worked together a few times. I was just actually looking at his LinkedIn profile. It claims Aravina. He's been there 17 and a half years, which I find a little bit hard to believe. So he's... That's right. <laughs> a stalwart, which is a word I don't use very often. 
of the talent space. And he's done a lot of things for me over the years. And I think he's got a very unique perspective on how the European startup and enterprise tech scene is changing and evolving. So I thought it would be great to have him on and explore some of those themes. So Dan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Glad you could come along. And I know we just said in a bit of preamble that Dan avoids these. So we'll make sure we get our money's worth out of him now. Ask him lots of difficult questions. Only teasing. So I always like to start with how people got into their profession. You know, 17 and a half years with Aravina. I saw you had a position before that, and maybe that was in the talent space as well. So so what's the story? How did Aravina come around? How did you decide to do this? I completely fell into the headhunting space out of university as a philosophy graduate. Like many philosophy graduates know, clear path to uh, any kind of uh, vocational career from there. And... I was lucky enough to join a headhunting firm that happened to be focusing on the technology space. The team I was working in, we were the youngest people in the office. So we were given the internet to have a look at, which was fortuitous. Wow. This was when uh, people like electricity companies were trying to do dial-up over power lines, just to age me a little. I'm a similar age to Paul. So it was a super exciting time to be doing that sort of stuff. I started to index more towards B2B software and the work I was doing there. I think completely inaccurately, myself and a couple of people in the team thought that we could go our own way and we'd learn or we could learn from these sort of great, really nice experienced people that we were working with. And we decided to set up a company, three principals in that, myself, David Grundy and John Irvin, who's still my partner at Aravina today. And we had a, a slightly strange thesis at the time. And the thesis was we didn't want to build a recruitment company because that would be a, a stupid thing to earn, to own rather, because they... They don't make money while you're asleep and they weren't worth as much money as all these exciting software companies we were trying to build. So we actually had an idea that we would work with people that we knew, build their initially really their go-to-market teams on the B2B software side. And in our spare time, of which we didn't have any, but we, we conceived that we might, we would build software companies, which was a completely terrible strategy and one we executed on in a mediocre way. So we, we were lucky enough that we were good at the recruitment side. So again, we worked, um, and he was right, when we started, there was a, an incredibly nascent venture scene here. So it was, it was Index and Amadeus, and, and that was about it. And um, we worked with some of the really early, and I, I put kind of European, in inverted commas, companies like, like Zendesk, uh, for example, when they were at A-Round. Yeah, we worked with people like a telecom software company called Kramer Systems, which those with long enough memories will, will remember. They were a, a big exit for Kennet Capital, I think, to Amdocs at the time. And we worked with a bunch of those companies. In our, in our spare time, we, we co-founded a couple of software companies. We were fortunate enough, I think, probably to break even on that. We, we built a platform to, along with some other co-founders, to run a headhunting firm on called Invenius, which we, we raised venture capital for and we scaled that to uh, a couple of thousand customers. And we actually sold it to Bullhorn when it was owned by Insight Ventures in New York. And that was a, a nearly 11-year overnight success story, So, uh, like many of these things. So what that all taught us was that we, we should not try and build software companies. And that was a, uh, a discrete skill that we, we, we weren't completely equipped for. But what it also taught us was that we were almost by mistake had built a, a search firm with a growing reputation in what was a, an evolving VC tech scene in Europe at that point, which was exciting. And um, the cliched, I guess sort of the next sentence would be, and the rest, I suppose, is history. 16 years later, we worked with the majority of the sort of the well-known VC funds, both in Europe and in the US. 
We have offices in San Francisco, New York, Stockholm, Copenhagen, uh, Paris, uh, and London. And we still do a bunch of work in B2B tech. We also work uh, kind of across the rest of the sort of the, the tech ecosystem, whether it's fintech, healthcare, education, yeah, marketplaces, pure play digital, whatever it may be. So yeah, we've, uh, we've grown up a lot since then, but I still do the, the bulk of my work placing go-to-market people in software companies. Which is perfect for the podcast, because that's what we want to focus yeah. on. So you've done a lot there, okay? You've got a lot of ground. How do you think you have changed with the market? Because as you say, you know, I think it's very hot right now. Yeah. And Europe seems to be kind of where for years we've been saying it, and it feels like it's really here now. How have you seen this market change over that period of time? And how, how have you had to change to go with that? There's a bunch of questions to unpack there. I think in terms of the market, I would absolutely agree. It is as hot as we have ever seen it. I think what is interesting about asking the question of Europe, I used to see sort of Europe as a sort of a discrete backwater akin to New York, as they were both sort of inferior tech ecosystems to California. I think these days we, we view it slightly differently. I, I think there are a bunch of global companies being built at extremely high velocity, a number of whom were founded in Europe. And that's really exciting. Some good examples of kind of how that plays out. If you look at a UiPath or a Datadog or a Calibra or a Salonis, many of those companies, actually Salonis being the exception, and I think you know, something maybe to drill into later, many of them will found their technical team in Europe and will very quickly migrate go-to-market to the East Coast, and again, depending on their go-to-market motion more often than not, and build out there where they perceive the talent pool is deeper. I think that's obviously been an incredibly successful strategy for people like Datadog, so I'm not looking to, to do it down. I do think there are talent pools in Europe that are equally well qualified to scale and build global software companies. So yes, Salonis has done that by hiring Miguel Milano out of Salesforce, with a, a super hire from them, and he's doing a, a good job at scaling that business. I also think that if you look at uh, kind of different go-to-market models like volume SaaS or developer first or things like that, I, I don't see the gigantic advantage of kind of building out of New York or Boston or wherever it is from day one. I think there's a, there's a lot of very capable execs in Europe that can help you do that. What's interesting is that those execs do not have the network and relationships with the tier one VCs that you will see in the U.S. I think there are much, much closer connections between venture and kind of large scale tech than you see here. And I think that that is a way in which our ecosystem needs to mature further, I think. And I'm just thinking the people that will be listening to this will typically be on that A to B or B to C journey and maybe a little bit beyond C getting into, into a true scale up. And I've seen it when you meet founders and founding teams and they say, hey, we now need our head of sales. We need our head of marketing. Yeah. And you kind of lead them through a process of trying to work out what they do need. Can you kind of describe how you think about that when you meet with the founder and you kind of want to unpick that to make sure that they get what they really do need? Absolutely. And um, we've been through a number of those conversations, obviously, over the years. So that's uh, you know, no problem at all. I think the, the kind of things that we think about when we're talking to a founder or, in fact, a, a more scale business is really looking at the functions in their business as a continuum. So trying to draw a continuum from a developer to a customer success person. And in the middle of that, you have engineering leadership, you have product management, you have product marketing, you have performance marketing, you have sales enablement, you have sales, you have CS. And understanding where the strengths and weaknesses across that continuum are is really, really helpful. So if a company is relatively early stage and relatively early in terms of finding product market fit, for example, we think that magnifies the need for someone who is a thoughtful and frankly, just smart sales leader. So a good partner to the product organization, a good partner to the marketing organization. 
in truth, if you have unbelievable product market fit and all you need to do is put your foot on the accelerator and go from 100 to 500, you don't need that product partnership because the product is baked. And yeah, you might want their input once a quarter, but actually they can sell what's on the truck and that's totally fine. I think that one of the big challenges with, with early stage businesses is often they will look at a, a resume of someone that's been through a scaling journey, but slightly oversimplify when they join that scaling journey and they will underplay the situational kind of relevance to where they are. I just remember who sort of first told me this. I was working with an entrepreneur once and we were actually talking about why they didn't feel that things had worked out for them as a CEO. And they said that they tried to scale it before they nailed it. They'd hired a bunch of people. They'd built the sales infrastructure and all those sorts of things, but they hadn't quite worked out that recipe of how do we scale a business. And you see, Andy, you will know it's all in the numbers and it's all in the unit economics. It's all there in your cost of acquisition versus your lifetime value. It's it's all there in your churn numbers and all that sort of stuff. And if you are not in kind of data dog shape with your unit economics, you shouldn't go hire a thousand salespeople and think that sales will work it out for you. And so I think that a lot of it is around making sure that just the person is situationally relevant for the moment in time that a particular company finds themselves in. And they are all to some extent unique. Yeah, there are definitely patterns in all of this, but you know, everyone's running their own race. And I think it's important that founders are thoughtful about that when they try and sort of implement a playbook that they've seen elsewhere. And just to throw a compliment your way, because um, I know you love them. I've said this to you before, you know, I, I unfortunately start from a position of distrust with a lot of headhunters, okay? Because I wonder whose purposes they're serving, you know? And I think you go above and beyond to make sure that you satisfy both sides of the equation, that the business really, really gets what it really, really needs. And the person that takes the job actually takes a job that is really, really going to be good for them, as opposed to just <laughs> treating it like a matchmaking, you know, like, hey, you need them, they need you, why don't you just get together, which seems to be a lot of headhunting at times. So I've seen you do that, hence the question. As we just said, the market is super hot right now. And I'm seeing it get tighter and tighter and tighter. You know, put simply, do we have enough people to fuel all of this? The short answer is probably not. I think there's a few sort of issues in markets at the moment. I think, first of all, because of valuations, successful execs are, if they're doing well in a company, have never been less likely to move because ultimately their numbers, if they believe the spreadsheet in front of them, and I'm, you know, that's a whole probably other podcast, if they believe their kind of valuation metrics and all those sorts of things, most people doing well are sitting on a, a life-enhancing amount of money to some extent. And that's big companies and small companies alike. So yeah, if you're sitting there in Salesforce, you are earning more from RSUs than you've ever done before. You know, same for a workday, same for a service now and, and all those sorts of things. So it, it's not as easy to just go go take someone who's done that journey in a bigger company because they are earning more than they've ever earned. And I think in obviously in successful pre-IPO companies, everyone's getting measured on snowflake metrics and, and that's making everyone's spreadsheet pretty good. So I think there's there's a real lack of push from a financial perspective that you sometimes get in market because most companies have used this time to bolster their balance sheets. People aren't running out of money. People aren't kind of flying into the concrete. Most people have sort of shored up their balance sheets and are pretty stable right now. So that push isn't really in market. The other side of it is, although someone might say to you, well, you know, yeah, I'm just sitting on a ton of value from a stock perspective here. Everyone is rightfully very cynical about other companies' valuations, even if they don't have the insight to see that they could apply that to their own. 
So if they say, well, that's a really interesting company, but it's valued at $2 billion and it appears to be 10 minutes old. That's, that's crazy. How do you, how are they going to grow into that valuation? So there is certainly less movement at a high quality candidate base than we've seen for a little while because of that. Uh, I also think people are just sort of reticent to move when I think everyone's pretty emotionally exhausted by the last year or so. I think it's uh, fair enough for everyone. So I think there's, there's lots of reasons not to do things right now. All that said, should you wish to, again, pick through the numbers, there are some amazing companies being built right now, as we said, from all over the world, scaling at a rate. You know, and we've been waffling on about the software industry to everyone that would listen for you know, 20 years plus and about sort of you know, the world going digital and software eating everything and all that sort of stuff. And it's happened, which is great. And so I think we're in an incredibly exciting moment. I think it's very difficult for kind of the, the average person in it to work out what their path is through it because there's so much noise. I would say it is tougher for a B-round founder to go you know, grab a VP out of Salesforce than it's ever been. And equally, there are a lot of businesses that, let's say, have got to spend a few years growing into their valuations, both in the US and here. And again, I think those companies are finding it difficult to attract the best talent because there is kind of rightful cynicism around some of those, some of those valuations. So it's an interesting time. And at the same time, everyone wants to upskill and hire someone and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, supply has never been worse and demand has never been higher. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be a headhunter. Yes. I was just going to build on that and say, what do you think of the skills and the stage that are kind of really, really in demand at the moment? Is there a bubble forming around any particular areas? I'll give you a very specific, well, uh, two very specific ones. So I think the companies that have fundamentally been growing through product-led growth, who then get to that point where they have been told by their board they should start to turn on outbound marketing and start to think about selling this stuff to doing bigger deals and selling to bigger companies. I think that moment in time higher is a big one. So we always sort of talk about it as like Salesforce 2008, Zendesk 2014, companies where they've just gone from kind of sales assisted to land and expand and now they're starting to do bigger deals. I think finding commercial leaders that understand the full stack of go-to-market motions is really in demand and hard because lots of people are brilliant at volume, lots of people are brilliant at open source, lots of people are brilliant at enterprise. But someone who's seen that journey in that moment in time, that's a tough thing to solve for because there aren't that many of them. I think the kind of the other ones at the early stage, it's this is not unique to now, but I think it's the person that can reach up and down. So it's the person that is happy to do the first 50 deals, but can also build a team of 50 people. There's always lots of requests for that. And I think great early stage salespeople tend to be people that solve puzzles and kind of work stuff out. And those people are often reasonably eccentric and not necessarily, therefore, the best people leaders. So finding someone that will do your first 50 deals, but then also scale you to kind of build out your sales team and build that machinery, those two things aren't always that compatible. Again, I think a lot of founders benefit from deciding which is the most pressing issue and hiring for that superpower. I think that is the, uh, yeah, that's often the advice that we, we end up giving. Yeah. Listen, I can echo a lot of that because in the Notion portfolio, you know, the demand for people who can commercialize open source people who can really understand outbound product-led growth, people who can yeah. actually 
understand how to build a big business through SMB at the small end of SMB because markets are so big now and cost of acquisition enable you to reach those sorts of, of markets. I feel like those are the areas that, where we're creating companies, but don't necessarily always have the skills to scale those companies. I think there's a big question as to whether the role, the CRO role endures or actually the CMO role in their current forms. Because I think both might be too broad, I think, to get someone that's really good at all of those things. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. On, on the volume side, what do you want from a CRO? Well, the, the intelligence in the funnel of a volume SaaS business is actually at the top of the funnel. It's all about your know, sales basically becomes more of a fulfillment issue. And what you want to be is brilliant at segmentation and making sure you're only pursuing the leads that you know you're going to close for no money. So if you are looking for a CRO for a volume business, you ultimately probably look for a someone who's great at that top of funnel stuff. He's a great performance, sort of modern performance marketeer. And very few of them have ever had sales reports into them. So the quandary on those people is always, yes, but they haven't built a sales team. Like, well, well, of course they haven't because they're not a salesperson. I also just think the idea that a marketeer, very short tenure in Silicon Valley for CMOs at the moment. And I think the challenge there is, who's brilliant at brand product marketing and then also like funnel management of next year's number, like no one probably. So whichever way you do it, and I think even in enterprise sort of SaaS, sort of enterprise SaaS environment, again, what you mean when you say CRO is probably a sales leader because the intelligence in your funnel is in front of your customer. So I think CRO is generally pretty poorly defined and I think CMO is generally pretty poorly defined. And I wonder if there is just a bit of a reorg in that kind of go-to-market function and a kind of rethink that might need to be had. And I think that the companies that grow really quickly tend to just hire people that are brilliant at the constituent parts of the job. You know, if you're going to grow really quickly, you need someone who is, you, know, you, you probably need someone who's brilliant at product marketing. You need someone who's brilliant at performance marketing. You need someone who's brilliant at sales, whatever sales means to you. And if companies want to grow quickly enough, they probably hire three people to do those three jobs, understanding that actually the hierarchical piece of that doesn't really matter. And, and it's better than hiring someone to oversee all that who's lousy at two of the three things. And you, you said earlier the word superpower, which is one that I'm always intrigued by. So people listening to this will be saying, hey, I've just raised an A, I've just raised the B, possibly just raised the C. What is that superpower I should be looking for? Any tips in terms of, it's neat to put them around funding rounds. You may want to think about the journey differently, but just things that they, they should have, particularly thinking a lot of founding teams are technical or come from kind of more of maybe an engineering product background. You touched on some of it earlier. Actually, I think that there is a couple of lenses to sort of view that through. And I think one is the cultural one. If you can find someone who is a great salesperson, who is also a brilliant partner to your machine learning PhD technology founder team, brilliant. It is very rarely the case that they all end up going on holiday together. And what is probably more realistic is founders educating themselves a little bit before they start meeting people for themselves on kind of what sales leaders feel like. So that isn't quite so jarring when they come to hire one themselves. And kind of getting a sense at an ontological level what that, you know, what that shape of person is meant to represent, what they're meant to deliver to the business. I think then surrounding them with people that enable them to be successful. So again, if you're an early stage business and you've raised an A and you do something profoundly technical, there is a, this isn't always the case, but there is a chance that actually you haven't done as great a job on your storytelling or your product marketing, or your sales enablement as you think you have. 
So there is a great chance that the people that you've sold it to so far are as clever as you, but there's only 10 of those people. And actually, your job is to work out how to sell it to slightly more stupid people. And that is initially about storytelling. That's about product marketing. That's about where do we fit in? What problems do we solve? Not how do we do it, but what problems do we solve? And then what a sales leader will do, take those stories, take those to more people than you can visit. I think we talk a lot about that kind of moment where you scale beyond founder-led selling. And I think what happens a lot is that a founder will hire a head of sales and then be really annoyed in six months because the salesperson takes them to every meeting. And they're like, well, I could just be doing this myself. This is not what I signed up for. This was so I didn't have to see any, anyone ever again. That's why I hired the salesperson. And actually what the salesperson is saying to you is, we don't have product marketing. We don't have sales collateral. We don't have any of that stuff. So I'm having to take you to every meeting because it's in your head. What a great early stage head of sales does is they get it out of the founder's head into a story that means something to someone who's not as clever as the founder. And this person will remain nameless, but they ran a very, very large global sales org of many, many thousands of people. And their view of their job was they would measure their success by the least capable unit of sales production they could get to overachievers club. So the, the lazier person I can get to club the better job I've done as a sales leader, because that means I'm scaling. And I, I totally appreciate how counterintuitive that is to a lot of founders who are like, how dare they be lazy? I've you know, spent my life building this wonderful product for them to sell. But actually, if you can get bad salespeople to sell your stuff, you are winning. That's what scalability feels like. The logical conclusion of that is a credit card, right? So that's the journey that you're on between founder-led selling and self-serve. That is a counterintuitive journey for a lot of founders to go on. But I think once they accept that actually their job is to, their job is to make sales of their incredibly complex idea as simple as humanly possible, those are the ones that tend to go quite quickly. It's interesting. By complete coincidence, I've just written a short blog post about achieving go-to-market fit moving beyond founder-led sales. Yeah, so it was actually on my mind this morning as I was doing my 500-word essay on that. We'll call it a blog. Um, <laughs> where does this go wrong? You know, because I'm I'm acutely aware as well that mistakes often happen. And in the enthusiasm to hire people, you know, I, I think it's pretty well known in the industry now. People tend to correlate, hey, if I can hire the best, most senior team I can, there's a higher correlation to my success. And then things don't work out and people churn out the business. And often there's no real fault here, but somehow it's just not worked out. And I'm, I'm curious what you've seen in terms of avoiding that or moving beyond that. I think it, it's very difficult just because there are so many variables at play. I've seen lots of people fail with a series of sales leaders. And then for no apparent reason, someone else turns up who's no better than the three previously. And they are the person that unlocks the value and is the hero. And go-to-market leaders typically wouldn't say this, but they have done it on the shoulders of the, the people that have gone before because they are often the people that have trained the founder to work with go-to-market. And they've not been successful because they haven't had time to reap the benefits of those lessons. But I've seen a number of businesses who kind of say, oh, we hired this sales leader and they were, they were, they were terrible. And actually, we've hired this one and they're great. And you can see that they've literally inherited the value created by the other person and executed. So a lot of successes are serendipitous and, and timing-based. The question is, how do you spot it if it's not working? And, and how do you move on? And I think one of the reasons that we really push for and lobby for the 
why don't you hire someone smart early rather than necessarily really senior? Why don't you hire someone smart who isn't going to be upset if they don't do 400% of the number in your first year with a product, but actually is enjoying working this out with you and is working hard and is, yeah, is, is working a bunch of this stuff out. That is one of the reasons that we kind of lobby for that. The second thing is if, if that's not working or you're just not getting what you want out of someone, or actually they've just run their course. So they might have done a couple of years of really good work because they're a great salesperson, but they're not scaling as a sales leader. That's just okay. That just means well done. They have done such a good job. They're no longer the right person to lead your go-to-market organization. And again, I think technical founders find it very easy to get the idea that their founding CTO might not be the best engineering leader when they get to 100 people. Sales is the same. There's just, Andy, you have a good framework for this around you know, various kind of revenue gates where, where kind of different skills come into play. And I think that every year or two, if you're scaling quickly enough, you may well need to change out your sales leadership. I had a good friend who was global head of sales for Duo Security. And if you remember them, they were backed by Index and Benchmark and GV and various others. And they're a business genuinely growing at like two, three hundred percent. And their sales leader was very open about this. He would say that he would hire someone. And by the time they'd got to their 90 day review, they would typically be underqualified on CV for the job they were then doing because another layer of management had gone in because it had to because the way they were scaling. And so what he did, again, he hired like adaptable, smart, resilient people who kind of didn't mind the kind of pace of that. I think that if you are a, an A and B round founder and your head of sales isn't working out, just really analyze the reason why. It might be because they're terrible and lazy and dreadful and all those sorts of things. It may well be because they've done their job so well, they're no longer right. And at that point, Try and find a, you know, try and find a job for them in the business. I mean, there are exceptions to this, you know, very publicly. You know, people like Justin Hoffman at Elastic. I think, I think Justin was the first rep at Elastic and he's still global head of sales. Chris Degman at Snowflake was their first rep and he's now global head of sales. So there are exceptions to these rules, but they are exceptions. And in the main, the person that does your first 100K deal is not going to be your, he's not going to be your head of sales at 100 million. And I think planning for that and planning openly with them for that so that they know that that yeah, you'll give them the shot. I think that is the best way to do it. And I think there are bad salespeople in software. You know, there are bad technologists, there are bad salespeople, there are bad marketeers, there are bad everything. And again, if you feel that, for example, you're not getting the level of transparency through pipeline from your sales or you're not getting the right numbers sort of reported up to finance and all those sorts of things, again, if that is your first kind of salesperson, they're not going to be great at sales ops. And I know you've employed a few of those kind of pioneer salespeople in the past yourself. They tend to be the biggest nightmare that your sales ops team or your finance team ever meets because they're, they're creative and they're, they're puzzle solvers. So I think just celebrate the superpower of the person. Try and surround them with the other stuff they need to do the complete job. But don't be surprised if your brilliant bottoms up volume sales leader doesn't manage to do your $10 million deal with City. Don't be surprised. They're, they're discrete skills. Yeah, no, that's a really good way of putting it, actually in terms of those early salespeople. And yeah, I've employed some of those creative people in the past, absolutely. You did a really good job earlier of talking about the changing nature of sales and marketing and how expansive CRO, CMO titles are. But just as functions, you know, I almost regularly now see this pattern of a rush to hire a senior salesperson, then retrospectively trying to put a senior marketing person in and then all of a sudden worrying about the stickiness of the customers and trying to put in a customer success person. 
Any thoughts on kind of ordering and layering and spans of control? Just just what you're seeing in terms of companies making that work today? It's interesting because yeah, I can tell you what I've seen, and I've actually probably not really thought too much. I haven't probably thought deeply enough about kind of sequencing to say what I would necessarily advise. But I think a lot of people talk about kind of sort of customer centricity as a sort of laudable thing to spend time doing, and uh, I would agree with that. So I have seen a number of companies do CS first, interestingly, because they've got some customers. And actually, a a kind of, not a junior, but a kind of competent CS person being in place early means that you keep those early customers, which is important, <laughs> because they're the ones most likely to churn because you don't really have a product yet. So having a good CS person who can make sure that you keep the customers you have, a lot of CS leaders are more natural partners to products than a salesperson might be. So again, when you've got those early customers and they're on, you know, let's say not not necessarily wildly robust versions of your software, and they're asking for a bunch of stuff, the CS team is a really good interface for that back into products and a really natural one and kind of a gentle one, if you like. I think what you would do after that is dependent on motion. So I think if you are top down, after that, you hire a salesperson. If you're not top down or you're community based or those sorts of things, I think you could make a case for hiring a marketing person. Because actually, yeah, once you've got a bunch of happy customers and you're a volume SaaS business, what do you do next? Well, you go identify a TAM that feel a little bit like your happy customers and then you segment them and then you go to market and then you hire some salespeople to fulfill that demand. Very few software companies are obviously that deliberate about it. You're right. They just, they just go hire a bunch of salespeople that they then don't like because they haven't closed a load of deals. But yeah, I, I would say like that would be quite a thoughtful way to do it. I think what we see a lot of, yeah, we do see some early CS hiring sometimes. We see what you just said. They hire a salesperson first because they're usually because they're bored. You're saying, why don't you have a salesperson? And then the salesperson goes, well, I can't be successful because I haven't got any marketing. And so they hire one of those and then they go, oh, what, what happens after that? And then, and then they, the founder that's been running around, the co-founder that's been running around trying to look after the customers gets some help and they kind of get a CS person that's done it before. But I think you really can make a case early on for hiring someone that really looks after the, really looks after and listens to the customers that you've got really drills into the detail of those customers. Why are they buying? What else do they want? What's the upsell, cross-sell opportunity with those people? Could you build your go-to-market playbook out of product and CS? Probably. Because the problem with sales and marketing is you start spending money acquiring customers at that point. And if you've got your unit economics wrong, the more money you spend, the worse it'll go. Whereas kind of CS and product in unison is actually quite an interesting team to go experiment and test with messages and with new products and with new features and those sorts of things, and you're not spending money. I mean, I'm, I'm working with a relatively extraordinary company at the moment who I won't name, but they are a developer tools company. And they basically hired a head of product to go alongside their founding team. They then hired a, I think a growth person is probably the way I would put it. So not really a marketing person, you know, sort of growth, marketing and product hybrid is what I would say. She stood up a sort of minimum viable sales team, which was a, a bunch of yeah, half a dozen salespeople and stole an engineer who liked building spreadsheets and that became their RevOps person. And actually they've got to 20 million in six months. I think they'll get to 60, 70 million this year having not spent a dollar on marketing. Wow. Which is extraordinary. But what they've really focused on, like really focused on, is who are our customers? What do they need to buy? 
they will now obviously have to build a marketing team and a sales team and all that sort of stuff. But they've, by not doing that and being small enough to kind of perpetually experiment, they didn't spend a bunch of time and energy doing the wrong stuff. They really focused on making sure that everything was in a line before they went big. Wow, fascinating. So just a couple more questions, just to kind of explore some of these themes a bit more. One is, how as a candidate now do you think things have changed? And how do I, you know, you started by saying a lot of them are in seat and they're not really in a rush to move because one, we've just been through a pandemic, which is, as you said, emotionally and and probably work-wise drained a lot of people. But secondly, is they're probably sat on a lot of perceived stock value that they think is going to be, as someone once said to me, either car changing, house changing, or life changing. Want to tick one of the above? Yeah. <laughs> How as a candidate should I think about this? Should I stay put? Because I, I see a lot of exciting things happening, and I think it must be difficult for them right now to decide what to do. I think we're in a 12-month-old economy from a valuations perspective, give or take. And I've heard sort of vaguely optimistic views on this, which is there's a lot of, you know, VCs have an awful lot of money still to deploy and they're incented to deploy it. So, yeah, this will all continue and everything will be, you know, everything will just continue to be great. And, you know, this is to coin a popular phrase, this is the new normal and and, a, and away we go right through to people who have actually told me that they're thinking of selling their most recent funds and just going to live on a mountain for two years and coming back when when there's some value. And I think for candidates, it's the same. I mean, one of the things that I was chatting to a client recently about around a CRO search, they are from a percentage of the company perspective, they are offering a CRO at the US business, probably a quarter of what would have been standard two years ago, from a percentage perspective. But if you follow through the growth of their valuation and the growth of their revenue, it's a 75 to $100 million outcome for the CRO, which is amazingly like a kind of standard conversation that is happening around a bunch of these businesses at the moment. So the CEO was said, I can't offer four times as much of that because that because those numbers would be ridiculous. And uh, yeah, the argument could be they already are. What we've talked about is if there is significant market correction on valuation, making that good. So going back, expanding the share pool and going back to something akin to what it was. So basically managing their downside against market correction, which is a crazy thing to even have to talk about doing. But we're kind of seeing those conversations with a bunch of companies where they're kind of saying, well, yeah, they won't engage unless they think they can get to these numbers. But to guard against the what happens if everything goes back to being worth, God forbid, 50 times revenue, (laughs) what happens then? Well, the answer is we'll double your stock. So you'll end up where you would have. And I think those are the kind of conversations that companies are kind of having. And I think the wrong answer is just to say, no, this, this run continues forever. Because that doesn't deal with the understandable paranoia of the candidate, which is, um, you know, I've got existing networks here, I've got existing relationships here, I'm doing a great job, I'm well thought of, and all those sorts of things. And yes, this might be better, but it's the difference between 30 million and 50 million is, yeah, both are life changing, right? And I think just having a kind of an adult conversation that not every single one of these companies might turn into Snowflake, I think is probably a good way of. First of all, appearing like a sensible adult, which everyone looks for in a hiring leader. And secondly, it's a great way of kind of mitigating that risk for them. And it's obviously only a hypothetical risk, but it's a great way of mitigating that risk for them. And you're going to have to do it for your whole exec team anyway, because if they're all there on a quarter of what they should be, and all of a sudden things return to normal, they're all going to be a flight risk unless you make them good. So it's something you'd have to do anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you think, you said something earlier, which kind of made me smile, want to go live on top of a mountain or words to that effect. 
Do you think the pandemic has changed people's views of work-life balance or changed their views of, hey, I want to be on a plane for the rest of my life or, you know, the old words like, phrases like road warriors. Who wants to be a road warrior anymore when we just spend a year sat at home and kind of like it sometimes, you know? Do you think this has changed it? There are all those people booking, yeah, booking seats on flights that don't go anywhere just so they can have the meal, aren't there? So uh, I think it will change. I, I think the, the global head of sales CRO role for a scaling business is the hardest, one of the most physically demanding jobs I've ever seen. And actually, very few people do it three or four times because of that, because the quarterly trip to APAC, the quarterly trip to EMEA or the US, depending on where you're based, it can sometimes be monthly, right? Just wears people out, I think, over time. I'd be surprised if in the near term it returns to that kind of travel cadence. I think everyone's realized that we can do a bunch of stuff on video, I think everyone's realized that these people can race anywhere. I would say I've got a lot more flexibility from our clients around like where someone can live. You know, very much it's now just like if it's within two or three hours, plus or minus on time zone, that will do. <laughs> like we don't need them to fly to come to work. And I think that's sensible. I think what a lot of commercial leaders think is that's great, but I still need to get to know the founders. I still need to spend that time. So actually, you know, in the first six months, you know, if they're based in Paris, I'm going to go spend six months in Paris. I'm going to have to spend six months in Paris just to really get under the skin of the business. So I think it's mixed. I mean, I've read a bunch of stuff on the kind of years after the Spanish flu and sort of, you know, by 1922, the Spanish flu just wasn't mentioned like in any newspaper anywhere at all. I don't think we should ever underestimate humanity's ability to forget. And hopefully, you know, this stuff's behind us kind of in a year or so. I hope for the health and well-being of the CROs that I know that everyone sort of remains reasonable on that stuff. I don't see any reason why any employee of a company should be spending 200 days a year on a plane. I just think it's an incredible waste of time and resource. I don't think we should ever go back to that, but it wouldn't surprise me if we did. Yeah, yeah. I think you, you make a good point in terms of do we have short memories here? Hey, last question then, and I always ask people this, what are you seeing out in the market now that fascinates you? Either new industries, new verticals, new skills, things that you look at and you kind of admire or fascinated by and think, that's interesting, we should be paying attention. I wonder if this is only interesting to me. We'll find out. So kind of things that I'm really interested by are, you know, we meet a, an AI or ML kind of dev company of some description every day of the week right now. And... One of the things I'm really interested in, in trying to kind of work out is the go-to-market models of those businesses are really, really interesting. And I think at one end of the spectrum, I think you'd have like a Mongo or data robot go-to-market motion. So very much like sell what's on the truck, build coverage, execute, execute, execute. And at the other end, you've got Palantir. Palantir is fascinating because they have like ex-chief commercial officers of Deutsche Bank and the ex-MD of UBS in Europe as their salespeople. And the reason for that is they don't believe anyone on their client side is sophisticated enough to operate their technology. So ultimately, they're an outsourcing company, really, from a model perspective, if you like. And I am very, very interested to see how a lot of the kind of ML and AI companies think through that stuff and just whether they think there is enough sophistication on the client side to actually drive the value out of what they've built for them. And I think that's going to be really, really interesting. I think the other area I just really, really like is sort of applied automation. And obviously, you know, people like UiPath and you know, Blue Prism and Automation Anyway have done a, an amazing job at kind of on the RPA side. 
I really like there are companies in Europe like Brighter, for example, who have built kind of a low code, no code platform, uh, predominantly for the legal industry. At least that's where they're kind of starting. And I wonder whether there will be business models where you build a set of basically a set of products for, let's say, the legal industry. And then rather than sell them to all the law firms, you buy all of the law firms, crunch out all the people and end up with a massive law firm that deliver a bunch of services in a really consistent, really high margin way. So I think there are a bunch of industry automation companies. I think I've seen a few people who are starting to at least kind of talk about building those sorts of things. And I think that kind of applied automation and low codes could crash the London property market. And I think that would be great for everybody. I think very few industries disrupt themselves. And I think the idea that I know UiPath have done a brilliant job of selling their software to a whole bunch of banks. Knowing those banks, I don't think they will disrupt themselves. I think it is more likely that someone will come along and disrupt them. Yeah, I think that's a profoundly exciting space and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. That whole AI ML go to market, the kind of self-service versus the customized service continuum, I think is fascinating, by the way. Yeah. yeah. That's one of my next blog posts that I'm kind of noodling on at the moment, to be quite honest. So, Dan, listen, I knew there would be some good insights. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate the thoughts, the prep and the insights that you've given us. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure.